Good morning, everyone. This month is kind of an interesting month. This month of September regarding the preaching schedule. So we just finished at the end of August our long journey that we started in February through the book of Luke and book of Acts. And then in October, we're starting a new journey when Pastor Don assumes his role as interim pastor and leads us in a transitional ministry. So this September is kind of a transition within our transition. And I would like to take this opportunity to share with you this morning a few things that I do in my own personal studies. In these studies, I'm looking at scripture in terms of a story or a drama, like a theater piece, and try to explore how that helps me, how that aids me in understanding, not only understanding scripture better, but also how to apply it in my personal life. Well, let's jump right into it and turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 20, verses 1 to 18, and the events at the court in Gerar. Now, this is part of the Abraham story that starts roughly in Genesis chapter 12. There, God receives, uh, there Abraham receives his calling from God and the promises. God promises him land, a descendant, protection, to be blessed and to be a blessing. And then Abraham sets out with his household from Mesopotamia to Canaan. And in the course of his story, God elaborates on these promises, extends on these promises, and enshrines them in two covenants, one in chapter 15 and the other one in chapter 17 where he also promises him his personal presence. I will be your God. And at the same time expects Abraham to behave worthy of a follower of God. In chapter 14, we encounter the the battle or the war of the nine kings where Lord is kidnapped and then Abraham in a daring raid frees him. Chapter 16, story with Hagar and Ishmael. In 18, the Lord and two angels visit Abraham and Sarah, and it's also where Abraham and Sarah are told that within a year they will have a child of their own. Chapter 19, destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and once again, the rescue of the Lord. And so when we come to chapter 20, a lot of things have already happened by the time we, we, we reach this, this event. Well, let's read it together. Genesis chapter 20, starting in verse 1. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She's my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead. Because of the woman you have taken, she is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her, so he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, she's my sister? And didn't she also say, he's my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience, and so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife 
for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all yours will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should not be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother. And she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah he said, I'm, going, I'm giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife, and his slave girls, so they could have children again. For the Lord had closed up every womb in Abimelech's household because of Abraham's wife, Sarah. Now, as attentive Bible readers, you know that I skipped something when I reviewed Abraham's life or part of his story. Namely, this has happened before. In Genesis chapter 12, right after he came to Canaan, there is a famine, and then he moves with his household to Egypt, and the same thing happens there when they encounter Pharaoh. Now, obviously, Abraham must have some doubts about the promises of God. I mean, we know that he trusted a lot, but maybe not in all areas. Or maybe he didn't trust that God can follow through with his promises in all areas. So he thought, I need to take hands, uh, things into my own hands. And tells her, tells Sarah, well, wherever you go, you need to say, I'm your brother. And I will say, you're my sister. Now, this is quite interesting. I think he was really scared. Because there's an unusual thing to do as a patriarch. And this was a patriarchal society, and we see this still today in any other patriarchal society. One role of the head of the household is to control the sexuality of the female members of his household. And to make sure and to protect the sexual integrity of them. But obviously that was not his main concern. He is willing to throw her under the bus. Now the interesting thing is he must have known from his previous experience in Egypt what could happen or maybe what would happen if they could Repeat this if they just do the same thing again. 
Maybe he thought, and I'm just guessing here, well, she hasn't been able to conceive children when she was younger, and now she's beyond childbearing, so if it comes worse to worse, what can happen? Well, I'm just guessing here. We don't know what is actual rational, what his fear was. But I think it is safe to say that Abraham's lack of faith, or at least lack of trust into certain aspects of God's promises, leads to a cascade of events that brings Sarah into an impossible situation, that brings Abimelech into a situation where divine punishment, not just of him, but of his possibly of his kingdom, is a possibility. And there are indicators already there, namely the fertility in this kingdom is compromised. And you shouldn't forget that fertility was extremely important at that time. And Abraham's testimony as a follower of God is thrown into question. Now, fortunately, there's a happy ending to that because obviously God is able to follow through on his promises. So he rescues Sarah and prevents that Abimelech is being punished. And he shows himself as redeemer and provider. And the fertility is restored. But I think this story is a great reminder that for us all that a lack of faith can lead to events that we might not be able to anticipate. And that also might compromise our testimony. And I think it's also a great reminder that God kept on working with Abraham. So if you look at the whole of the story, now this is kind of a meltdown of Abraham's faith, but Overall, I mean, he has shown great faith and God had kept working with him throughout. And we see that his faith is on the up. The trend is going up. And I think this, again, for us a great reminder that even though we might be struggling with faith in some areas, God still works with us to help us to grow overall. Well, now you might be asking, what has this, what you just said about this story in in Gerard and Abraham and Sarah, what has this to do with the introduction you made about looking at scripture in terms of story or drama? Well, that's a good question, and so far, not much. But I suggest to you that, that there is not an alternative way, but a complementary way of looking at scripture. Namely, to look in terms, also in this episode, in terms of story and drama or theater piece. And this leads us then to ask questions. For instance, what, what themes, which themes are negotiated in this story? What concepts or topics are covered? What's going on here? What roles do the characters take on? In what capacities do they act? Particularly God and, and Abraham. And so what I mean is that if we look at this episode in this, from this angle, we see that the presence of God is a very important theme. God appears in a dream to Abimelech. He also has kind of the ability to project his presence into Chirah by impeding 
the fertility in this town, which, of course, also points out that he is the creator, irregardless of what other gods people are worshipping there, but he is really the one who is in charge. We also notice that he's king. He's the sovereign who calls the shot, the judge. But he's also a moral agent when he, when he uh, indicts Abimelech. He's not saying, you know, I'm administrating here some abstract law, and unfortunately, yeah, you know, on page 256, it says this. No, it, it says you're sinning against me. He's a moral being. But then also it turns out that God is the redeemer. And he has the power to, to redeem, with, even with force. So we could say, well, he's not a protector, even a warrior. And then when we look at, a, at Abraham's role at the end, well, he acts as a priest. He's the intermediary between Abimelech and God. He prays for him, and then things are restored. Now, am I just making this up here, or is this just an accident that we discover these themes in this passage? Well, I don't think so. I think this is woven into the DNA of Scripture. These themes and even and, and, and topics we looked at and the way God acts and, and Abraham acts, and there are many more, we find them right at the beginning of Scripture. In Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Just would like to give you a brief overview, just the broad strokes that you see what I'm talking about. So in Genesis 1, God as the creator, he creates the universe. As the king, he assigns function, he divides and separates, he assigns roles, creates functionaries. And he creates it in a way that it becomes a temple that revolves around him. The six plus one pattern indicates that this is not just a a material thing he creates or something like this, but rather it has a purpose to serve as a temple. He also promises through his blessing that he will keep things running. It's kind of a covenant he makes with his creation. You know, I'm just creating here things and assigning, but also make sure that things keep running. I promise that. And he provides food for his creations. Then in Genesis chapter 2, in the garden, he marks out there a special place as a, as a kind of holy of holies in a holy place with the garden and tells the first human couple, you know, we'll be priests. You are protecting this place, its integrity, and you will start as image period to extend this holy area, so that at the end, the whole world will be in worship of me. That my character, that you are as image bearer, communicate, will be known in the whole world. And once again, we know in the garden, there is the provision of food, but also God makes kind of a covenant with them. You know, you can eat from all, but not. And if you do, then this happens, but at the same time, there is the promise of the tree of life, that No, if you follow me, well, there is a greater promise coming. Well, we know it kind of doesn't work out in Genesis chapter 3. Then as things go south, God reveals another aspect that maybe was already there before, but now comes really to the forefront. God is judge and moral being. 
and also as a warrior. And then when, when he kicks out a couple of the guard and puts the germ with the flaming sword at the entrance, you know, he's showing, you know, I have power, I have an army, you know, I'm a general. Whereas maybe in Genesis 1, he just tames nature or the chaos while he shows that he's a warrior. And when he just implicates or implies I'm, you know, with his pronouncement of good and very good, that he is a moral being, while well, he comes more and more to the forefront. Well, all right. So, once again, of course, we can ask, you know, what has this now to do with a passage we have been looking at? Well, I think if we have this in mind, that God created the universe for a purpose, that he is an agenda. And if you notice, this agenda is already present before the need of redemption and deliverance comes into effect. Then we can go back to the scripture and look at it from this perspective and think of what, in terms of the bigger picture of scripture. And then ask questions to specifically see how that episode appears in the light of Genesis 1 and 2 and 3. So for instance, then we can ask, well, how does Abraham's actions reflect on God as king? And how does his actions reveal how he, namely Abraham, thinks of God as king? Who is honoring king in this passage? Is it Abimelech? Or is it Abraham? I find it quite, um, it's quite an irony uh, when Abraham then in this conversation with Abimelech said, I said to myself, there's surely no fear of God in this place. And they will kill me because of my wife. Well, who obeys immediately? It's Abimelech, right? He's not saying, when God appears in a dream, he's not saying, oh, 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 you know, you God, I don't know you. You know, it's not your jurisdiction. We have our own God, so who cares, right? No, he immediately acknowledges him as his overlord. Abraham? Well, there seems to be a problem. We also can ask, how does Abraham's actions reflect on God's character? as a moral being of God, of who God is. So when he's then a little bit later in verse 13, or in the second half of 13, is saying, you know, I told my wife, this is how you can show your love to me everywhere we go, say of me, he's my brother. Well, Abraham is not saying, well, I told Sarah, you know, you can really show your true love to me, you know, your, your, your feelings, you know, that they're really true to me if, you, if you're saying this, if you're doing this. The word he's using for love is the same word that we translate in other instances, loving kindness, covenant love. That is part of God's character of who he is. So with other words, he's saying, You can show the character of God in your life if you're doing this for me. 
And of course, what he is implying is, if you don't do this show, something goes wrong, it's your fault. Then we also can ask, well, how is Abraham filling out his, his role as priest? Of course, he's doing then that was God has been telling them. He, he has been praying for Abimelech to restore the kingdom. And that's good. But how did it come to this that he had to pray for Abimelech to restore him? Is that kind of the way when... When God in Genesis chapter 17 tells him, you know, walk before me and be blameless, is that kind of how you communicate and reflect God? Or then when he tries to uh, weasel his way out of the situation with Abimelech, when he says, besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. You know, is that really true to what God has been asking? Asking him in Genesis chapter 17. And then we can ask, well, is that the way Abimelech should have met, encountered God? Or maybe would have there been a better way for Abimelech to, to meet God? If Abraham has lived up to what he was called to do in Genesis chapter 17. Well, another question that we can ask is, who is triumphing in this story? Well, obviously, it's God, because he proves everything that has been questioned by Abraham at the beginning. Now, he's the king. He's the judge. He's the redeemer. He has the power to protect, to live up to his promises that he made of Abraham. He provides. I mean, Abraham is richer than ever before out of the situation, even though he completely messed up, right? God proves Abraham that he was wrong. So yeah, I think there is a huge value in looking at the, in this story, in these in this terms, in this episode, to ask these questions. Because even though in the first part, and that's maybe more a traditional part, we have noticed, of course, it's a lack of faith and the testimony is in jeopardy, we're asking more specific questions. Just like, you know, we've been watching a, a sports game, like a hockey game or a soccer game, and then somebody else afterwards asks you, how was the game? And you said, terrible. And then the other person asks, so why was it terrible? Oh, it was not good. Well, that's not really helpful, right? But if you answer, well, the teams, you know, that problems, you know, the passing was incorrect, you know, the position, a play, there were problems, there were technical problems, the, the goalie was just waving at the spectators all the time, didn't pay attention, you know, then we know exactly what the problem was. But of course, there is one more step we can do. I mean, we have been now looking at Abraham, right, as a observer. And even though, of course, this situation is kind of unique to scripture and to Abraham's life, well, it's not correctly true, Isaac kind of followed in his footsteps, but we can't try to take a spectator position for our own life and try to see, just as we looked at 
Abraham and, and, and this episode and, and ask questions, we can look at our own life and ask, try to see us in our life circumstances and ask these questions that we just ask. And I must admit, if I'm doing this, it's a little bit scary because I don't really like everything what I'm seeing when I'm doing this. And I know that I need the help of God to work on some areas, just as Abraham obviously needed. Well, I must admit we have just been scratching here on the surface and simplified a lot of things, didn't really take into account the effects of the fall, and most of all, we kind of left out how Christ comes into play in this unfolding drama. But I hope that I've been able to make the case that it is valuable, that there, is, there are good reasons to look at scripture in terms of story and drama and to help us to understand it more fully and to apply it better in our lives. Let's pray. And I also would like to pray for the offering at the same time. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word and, and all these stories in there. And some stories are really hard to read and, and we can't really um, accept that these things are happening. But I, and I pray that you help us to learn from these stories, particularly for our own lives, and, and not use them to, to feel better, well, we'd never do this, I would never do this or anything like that, but rather see that even the greatest heroes of faith can stumble and take this as a lesson to work with you in our own life, to allow our, the, your Holy Spirit to work in us, to grow in faith, and to see how our role in your drama unfolds. To acknowledge you as king in all aspects of our life. To live up as priests. To allow your presence guide us and see that presence. Make it visible to others in our lives. And to display your character. So that the other people look at you with awe. And want to share and have the same thing that we have in our life. Heavenly Father, also pray now for our offering as we are, that you are taking to further your kingdom here in Wainwright. And I thank you for all the gifts that have been given, the donations for our building project. And I thank you that you are blessing us here in Wainwright. And I pray that we use this to, for your glory and to strengthen us as a body of Christ, but also help others to come into contact with you and to receive salvation and find their role in your unfolding drama. In Jesus' name I pray this. Amen.